0: This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith... Would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I hope you find those words as stirring as I do. Those are wonderful, wonderful words. Probably one of the most famous churches in all of the world is the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It, of course, had one of the most famous pastors of all time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon of course, began pastoring the Park Street Church when he was 19 years old, and he would be used by God to build what would be known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and the Metropolitan Tabernacle opened in 1861. By the way, what they call the Met Tab for short is still going strong today. The very first words that Spurgeon said in the Metropolitan Tabernacle were these. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, I do not hesitate to take the name Baptist, but if I am asked, what is my creed? I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left the body of divinity admirable and excellent in its way, but the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system or any human treatise, but Christ Jesus who is the sum and the substance of the gospel, who is himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. Those are fitting words as we start this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because Paul actually has given us what ends up being the finale of his argument that began in one seventeen and has gone now through chapter 2 and verse 5. Remember, Paul's um, argument has been up to this point that the message itself, the recipients of that message, and now the messenger... Are foolish by the world's standards, but if we're to actually have the wisdom of God, we have to renounce our own self-reliance and so um, Gordon fee calls this section uh, god's folly dash paul's preaching and uh, it's a good it's a good title for the section and so the message itself, the recipients themselves and the preacher himself whom God used. All had to reject self-reliance. And of course, the message of self-reliance is a is a popular message. It's sort of um, sort of a very American kind of message, right? You know, self-sufficiency, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rely on nobody but yourself. And um, you know, if you're a pioneer, that's probably pretty good ethic to live by. But in the kingdom of God, it has no place. And so that's what Paul's going to argue for us. And so 2, 1 to 5 is sort of the, the capstone of this section. Um, the other thing about 2, 1 to 5 that we should point out is not only is it Paul's grand finale of the argument here, but it also serves as a pattern or a paradigm for Christian ministry and Christian preaching for all time. What Paul says here is just as relevant to us today in the 21st century as it was to the Corinthians in the first century. And so it's my uh, hope that you will be gripped by this text and that it will become a part of not only your heart, but the way that you think about church, about preaching, and about the Christian life. So the passage is broken up pretty simply. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, we have the subject of biblical preaching. And uh, Paul begins by stating things negatively, and he says, "I did not come to you." Now, the the, um, the phrasing in verse one is uh, is awkward at best, and sometimes what happens, of course, you know, when you go to translate things, you can't maintain the same kind of awkwardness because then it wouldn't be a good translation. But sometimes when Paul is um, is we would say amped up, worked up. Sometimes there's an intensity in his writing that actually manifests itself uh, sometimes in some of this awkward phrasing. In fact, he starts off and he says, and I, and he uses an expression here that's uh, a combination, it's a compound word, but it's only used in one other place. And what Paul's doing by using this is, uh, let me just say, the, the phrase goes, And I, coming to you, I came not, is how it reads, which of course is is awkward. But what he's doing is he's saying, for my part, okay, so I've told you what God has done for you through the foolishness of the gospel. Now I'm going to tell you what I did or didn't do when I came to you. And Paul's going to basically argue that the very same way that the gospel came to them was the very same intent that he had as he came to the Corinthians. And that was not to be impressive, not to be spectacular, but to be straightforward. So I also like the gospel itself, if you will. I came not to you, and then notice this, with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Now, When Paul says, I came not with superiority of speech or of wisdom, he's actually doing something very intentional. He is is denying that when he came, he came with the eloquence that would have been popular in the Corinthians day and with the wisdom that would have been popular in the Corinthians day. In other words, what he's doing is he's dealing with his manner of speech and his content of speech. Now, when Paul says, I did not come to you with superiority of speech, he's not saying, uh, so I spoke to you in the uh, cotton patch version of the Bible. I spoke to you with inferiority of speech i I talk to you like a bona fide hillbilly um i that's paul's point is not that. in fact, Paul probably was a very, very, very fine preacher. But what he's saying is that he did not actually come embracing this idea of of eloquence and rhetoric that was designed to persuade. Or with wisdom. Now, these two words, by the way, uh, superiority of speech and wisdom, have already been used earlier in his argument together, back in chapter 1 and verse 17. So, what Paul has in mind here is he has in mind the art of classical rhetoric. The rhetorician in Paul's world had a very simple goal, and that was through really powerful, persuasive words, produce belief. That was the goal of rhetoric, was to produce belief, to influence a person's opinion. The more effective the rhetoric, the more effective one was in shaping and forming somebody else's opinions. And so, Paul says, when I came to you, that's not how I came. Ray Ortlund, Jr., in a really a terrific uh, paper that he gave for pastors a number of years ago, noted that classical rhetoric was not truth-driven. It was results-driven. And the result aimed at was merely a changed opinion. Yeah. Do we have that kind of rhetoric today? Yeah, we typically see it most commonly in, um, in our politics. Right? Where the idea is not to change somebody's mind by virtue of truth, but to persuade somebody's opinion by emotional manipulation. Okay. That's, that's rhetoric today. And so Paul makes the very clear point that I did not come to you like that. I was not going to use that method. Now, I'm assuming actually that Paul would have been able to do that if he had so wanted to. The way that his training would have been, uh, not only uh, in terms of his Jewish training, but also his Hellenistic or his Greek training, he would have had the ability to use rhetoric, to be a very powerful orator, but he actually consciously does not use that method. Now, remember, the problem is, is that the Corinthians had come to love that method, they had, be, they had come to the place where that was, that was power to them. That was spirituality to them. That's, that's, they thought that was the work of the Spirit. And Paul says consciously, that's not how I came to you. Then he says, when proclaiming the testimony of God. Now, does anybody's Bible say the mystery of God? Almost everybody's Bible would say the testimony of God. I think maybe the King James and New King James may be the mystery of God. Is that is it? Now, this, um, this is a great example. Not that you came for a seminar on textual criticism, but this is a great example of what we call te- textual criticism. There is There are two words that are found multiple times in this text, in different manuscripts. One is proclaiming to you the testimony of God, and the other is proclaiming to you the mystery of God. In Greek, the difference between testimony and mystery is only two letters. Okay? In fact, they look, the words look very, very similar. And so the question is, is what what is the right reading and uh, and so when you're looking at uh, something like this, you you have to look at the manuscripts that support the various readings. That's what we would call external evidence. And sometimes you have very old manuscripts that are very good manuscripts, and they all consistently read the same thing. And you might have late manuscripts that read a different way. And so manuscripts are weighed; they're not counted. And so you go with the older reading. Okay. But sometimes the readings are actually supported by um supported equally by the manuscripts. That ends up complicating things. So for instance, the word for testimony, marturion, is well attested by manuscripts, but the word mystery, musterion, has less support but has earlier manuscripts. Then you start looking at the text itself, all right? And so you start looking at internal evidence. What's the more likely word? Well, in this passage, this becomes very difficult too because Paul has already used the word testimony back in chapter 1 and verse 6, and then he'll use the word mystery in chapter 2 and verse 7. So those that opt for testimonies, the right word say it's a recollection back to 1-six. those who like mysteries say it's anticipating 2-7. So sometimes you have manuscript evidence that seems to be weighed equally. Sometimes you have internal evidence that seems to be weighed equally. And so sometimes you have to just step back and ask yourself, what is probably the most likely word that Paul would use in this situation? And I think my opinion, and obviously the opinion of most of your translations, so that's a good sign, is testimony and the reason that testimony seems to be the better word here follow me on this is because what Paul's doing Paul is not setting forth mystery at this point he will in a minute he's setting forth what the simplicity of the gospel right so the simplicity of the gospel which which word actually lends itself more to the contextual um, consideration of the simplicity of the gospel? Testimony or mystery? Well, I would say testimony, all right? So Paul says, there, there's your four-and-a-half-minute lecture on textual criticism. The testimony of God, then, is actually... Witness to God and to God's mighty work which he has accomplished in his son. That's the testimony of God. And so what Paul says is, when I came to you, when I was proclaiming to you God's mighty saving work in Jesus Christ, testifying to what God has Done. I didn't do it with superiority of speech, with fancy oratory, with uh, with rhetorical flourish and flair, nor with the wisdom of this world. It's important to understand that at this point, Paul sees himself not simply as a as a herald of the good news, and not simply as an ambassador. Of Jesus Christ. Both of those things are true, but he also sees himself as one who is testifying to the power of God in the gospel. That's what he sees himself as doing. I am a I am a witness. I give testimony to God and his power. And so that's negatively put. When I came to proclaim the testimony of God to you, I didn't do it superiority of speech, nor with Wisdom, now he states it positively in verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him as crucified. What a great statement. That is that is one of the, the, the most memorable things that Paul says about his preaching, isn't it? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him as crucified. When he says, I decided to know nothing among you, he says, the idea is I resolved or I purposed to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Now again, what he's saying is, I made a conscious decision, a resolution, I was resolved, Actually, in contrary to the sophists and contrary to the rhetoricians, I was determined to do something totally different than what you like and what you would have expected. And that was, I was resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, one of the things that we should point out is that Paul is not Saying, all I talked about was the crucifixion. This was, this was not um, every sermon, Jesus died for your sins. Come forward and get saved. Okay? That's not what Paul was saying when he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because what he says here. Determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified has to be consistent with what he says elsewhere, for instance, in Acts 2028. 20, I declared to you the whole counsel of God." So he was with the, Corinthians, or with the Ephesians for how long? Three years, right? Good. Uh, he's with the Ephesians for three years, he leaves, he meets the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, and he could say, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I don't think Paul's ministry philosophy changed from Corinth to Ephesus. I think that the idea of preaching Christ and Him crucified is exactly the same thing as preaching the whole counsel of God. So how can that be? Well, if Jesus Christ is in fact the sum and substance of the whole counsel of God, then you could be determined to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified and preach Him from Genesis to Revelation. Right? I mean, Paul could say in Colossians 1, we proclaim Him right and so the the idea for paul is not simply you know what i had i only had one string on my guitar and it was jesus died for your sins but rather i preached the christ centered scriptures to you i preached a christ centered message to you now he does he specifies and this is important christ as having been crucified Now, the reason that he does this is because once again, the Corinthians, uh, want to move away from that unseemly message of the cross. Right? Because for them, the cross, I mean, the cross ends up being a little bit of an embarrassment to them. As they're moving on to higher and better things and more spiritual things, and they're moving on to, to to real wisdom, the cross. Okay, well, you know that's that's okay. That's back there, and and the apostle Paul says, absolutely not. The Christ that I preach to you is the Christ who has been crucified for you. And so, when he says that, he is actually pointing out that for him, what he did is he had a holy resolve, a holy determination, a singular passion, a singular focus, and that was to preach Christ crucified. There's a story of an old church in England, probably, and above the door, it had a magnificent carved sign, We Preach Christ Crucified. And over the decades, the ivy grew up and began to encroach upon the sign, and pretty soon it covered the word crucified, so all the sign said was, We Preach Christ. But as time went on, the ivy continued to grow, and pretty soon all that the sign said was, We Preach. And then before too long, all the sign said was we. Okay. For the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he was about one thing. And that was preaching a crucified Messiah who is the only hope for mankind. And so, for Paul, when he preached the law, guess what? Christ, Romans 10.4, Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the grand subject of all of the scripture, his person and his work. Everywhere you go, whether by type or by shadow or by trajectory or by analogy, the fact is, is that Christ, him crucified, his person and his work is the theme of scripture. Whenever Paul preached Christ and him crucified, he didn't do it in in a simplistic way. He did it in a way that was the fullness of divine witness in both the law and the prophets. In all of the contours of redemptive history, Paul's message was Christ. Christ through a thousand different ways, but Christ... So for Paul, his message was Christ through and through. And so if if Paul's going to be talking to people about how to enter into the kingdom of God, what is he going to talk about? Christ and him crucified. If Paul's going to talk about marriage, what's he going to talk about? He's going to talk about Christ and him crucified. You actually believe that? When Paul goes to talk about marriage in Ephesians 5, what is the great model for both husbands and wives? It has to do with Christ and him crucified. When Paul's going to talk about purity and how you use your body, you know what he does? He decides to plant the cross right in the middle, even with these rascally Corinthians. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Every single step, every single tone, every single sermon, every single subject goes back to Christ. Christ is the permeating theme of all of Scripture, and so Paul's ministry was saturated with Jesus Christ, saturated with the cross. Now, of course, the Corinthians are are thinking, well, you know, Paul's, uh, you know, Paul's okay. I mean, you know, Country bumpkin he may be, but he's okay. I mean, but we're moving on to something bigger now. And then Paul says in verse 3, here's the power of biblical preaching. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Uh Thought you said this was about the power of biblical preaching. This is about the power of biblical preaching. (laughs) What Paul wants to make sure is that you understand that the power of biblical preaching is not in the preacher. Now, by the way, verse 3, when I was with you, I was with you with in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You will never hear a television preacher take this as a text. Because the television preacher, his stock and trade is triumph. And his stock and trade is impressive power. And Paul, now, and of course, who are the Corinthians gravitating to? They're gravitating towards the TBN preachers. They're gravitating towards the televangelists. They're gravitating towards the showy. They're gravitating towards those who are eloquent and powerful and persuasive. And Paul says, now, here's what I really want you to understand. When I was with you, I was with you in weakness. Is weakness a virtue for the Corinthians? No, no. Was was weakness a Greek virtue? No. Was re, was weakness a Roman virtue? No. Is weakness an American virtue? No. In fact, weakness is something you want to avoid. And Paul's kind of kind of brag about his weakness, when I was with you, oh, you remember those glory days, how weak I was? It's, it's just, it's, it's counterintuitive to us, right? We want, we want to think about how strong we are, how powerful we are, how how uh, impressive we are. Paul says, I was with you in weakness. Now, sometimes, some people point to that this must be a reference to Paul's physical condition, all right? Now, there's, there, there's some level of debate about Paul's physical condition. Okay? We know that he had physical maladies. For instance, that's he tells the Galatians, that's why he actually was able to preach the gospel to him was because he was laid up by physical weakness. All right? But I don't think that Paul actually was just like this, this poor, pathetic specimen of physical Uh, weakness. Think about this guy. You walk everywhere for 20 years over, over some pretty big mountain ranges. You're not taking a bus. You're not taking a plane. You're walking. Okay? This guy's in good shape. You get stoned three times. See, if you make it, okay, I'm talking about rocks and you know that. You get shipwrecked and left in the in the uh, in the sea for 3 days. See how well you do. Okay? This guy's the energizer bunny. All right? So I don't think that weakness necessarily had the idea of his physical weakness. Now, of course, a lot of God's wonderful servants actually suffered tremendously from physical weakness, didn't they? You think of John Calvin who suffered from migraines and hemorrhoids and uh, arthritis and uh, diarrhea. I mean, things that you probably don't even want to really know about at this point. And here was a guy who, because of physical weakness, actually was limited to preaching 30-minute sermons. Now, he did it every day, sometimes multiple times a day, but debilitated by physical weakness, Martin Luther, even though he was pretty tubby, was a guy that knew all about physical weakness. And Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon is laid up during the last decade of his ministry with agonizing gout. And so God God does delight sometimes in using physical weakness, but I don't think that that's Paul's point here. Uh, Other people um, point out... um, what he refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where his own appearance was weak and unimpressive, Uh, and so maybe it has the idea of his own personal awareness of of how unimpressive he was. But I, I don't think that actually captures the sentiment here either. I think that what Paul's getting at is this. It was a weakness, when he says, I was with you in weakness, what he's talking about, I think, is I was with you in such a way that I was stripped of all self-sufficiency and all self-reliance, and I relied wholly and completely, not on myself, not on my academics, not on my experience, but on Christ and him crucified. That's the weakness I think Paul's getting at. When I was with you, I was with you in weakness. That is, totally stripped of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and completely dependent upon Christ. And for Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, that kind of weakness is really where the strength is. Because then it's the power of Christ. Then he says, in fear and in much trembling... In the Old Testament, oftentimes these words are used together. And um, some people think that the idea of in fear and much trembling has to do with Paul being overwhelmed by the situation in Corinth. And you might remember that Jesus actually appears to Paul when he's in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 and verse 19 says, don't be afraid. I have many people in this city. Uh, some people think that maybe Paul was was just absolutely overwhelmed with the sinfulness of the city. He was overwhelmed with the opposition and the hostility. But But again, I think that those are all things that Paul is relatively accustomed to by this point in his life. So it's not like, you know god drops you down into the middle of san francisco or las vegas and you're surrounded by uh this this uh, wicked sinful world that's ready to just do you in and you're just shaking in your boots every time you stand up to preach i don't think that's what paul was like at all i think that when he talks about in fear and in much trembling the idea is not being overwhelmed by the situation in corinth but rather the idea is is that as i come to bring the message, the testimony of God to you. I not only did it in a way of utter weakness in and of myself, that is not depending upon myself, but depending wholly upon God, I also did it in fear and in much trembling, that is, in a humble response to the majesty of God. What Paul's doing when he says this in verse 3 is he's talking about the opposite of pride and strength of the cultured, sophisticated academics and rhetoricians of his day. We are people that are, that are pretty easily impressed. Somebody has some letters after their name, we're pretty easily impressed. Somebody has some prestigious, uh, titles and roles and we're, we're pretty easily impressed. Somebody's worked their way up and, and has made a name for themselves and they've, uh, they have, uh, lots of things published in journals and books and we're pretty easily impressed. And I think Paul simply was saying this. When I came to you, I wasn't trying to impress you. I was conscientious of the God who sent me. I was conscientious of the God whom I represented. I was conscientious of the God to whom I was bearing testimony. And so, of course, it was going to be in weakness. I'm absolutely nothing. He's going to say that in chapter 3 as well. What is Paul? Nothing. I I've stripped myself of all self-reliance and I was there in fear and trembling, not because of you, but because of the God whom I serve. In verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So here we have, in verse 4, Paul's ministry priorities, my word and my preaching. Um, my word, I think, is a reference to the word of the cross, the message of the cross, which he's already mentioned in 118 and 2.2. So the the content of my message. But then he says, and my preaching, which I think has to mean the delivery of that message. The medium of that message, and so when Paul is talking, and he says, "My word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. I think what paul is is saying is both the content and the method by which I came to you was not filled with this with this uh, uh, polished rhetoric and sophistry. Now, was Paul opposed to being persuasive? Don't mistake, quote, persuasive words of wisdom with just persuasion. Um, Good preaching should always be persuasive. If at the end of preaching you're thinking, that was the most uncompelling thing I've ever heard and I am completely unpersuaded that it's true, then the preacher did not do a very good job. Good preaching should be persuasive. I'm trying to persuade you tonight of something that will be clearer when we get to the end. I want to persuade you, but what Paul's saying is, is that the content of my message and the way that I presented it was not with this, um, the artificial methods. That's what we're talking about: the artificial methods of persuasion and rhetoric. Ray Ortland again. He says Paul didn't even try to be impressive. He was too impressed with Christ. It didn't bother him that the Corinthians could see he wasn't Mr. Cool. Brothers, it's the gospel, not in our skill in presenting the gospel, that God empowers. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it, it, it is kind of trendy for uh, pastors today to really want to be cool. You know that, right? Cool. Cool. That's the word cool. This is something I talk to Charlie about all the time. Charlie quit trying to be so cool. No, you know what you know what I'm talking about. You got this is this will I'm sure bound to get me in trouble, but you know, you got the tattoos so that everybody can see you're cool. And you wear ripped jeans so everybody can see how cool you are, and you use coarse language so everybody can see how cool you are. There's a whole generation of preachers that are addicted to trying to be as worldly as possible in order to make people think they're cool. Paul never thought it was his task to show people how cool he was. Of course I'm not talking about, you know, rolling your sleeves up in the afternoon and looking really dapper. I mean that's that's just <laughs> You know the thing is is that the messenger can't try to persuade the people with the message by his own coolness, his own impressiveness. What God is impressed with is Christ. That's all we have at the end of the day. And by the way, where is all this cool getting these guys? Think about that. These guys are dropping like flies. Robert Murray McShane, who was a great Scottish preacher, died when he was 29 years old. Accomplished more before he died in his short 29 years than most 10 ministers put together can accomplish. And he said, you've never truly preached Christ until you preach Christ for Christ's sake. You've never really preached Christ until you've preached Christ for Christ's sake. And so Paul says to them, listen, I had no desire to have really fancy message for you. I mean, a crucified Messiah is far from a fancy message. Old John Flavel, the old Puritan, said, Paul preached a crucified Christ in a crucified style. What was Paul committed to doing? Just being direct, to the point, in boldness, straightforwardness. That was that was Paul. That was not the, the value of the Corinthians, but that's what Paul believed was important in preaching. And the very simple reason was this. It's because in doing that... Having a simple message, Christ in him crucified, a direct style of preaching, the Apostle Paul knew that his preaching then would not be, in, 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 in human terms, impressive, but it would be a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Now, look at this phrase. My word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. For Paul, this this was all that mattered for Paul. Paul was not interested about standing at the back of the door at the church and getting a lot of people saying, hey, great sermon, Pastor Paul, appreciated that. What Paul was concerned about was that the message of the cross went forth in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, when Paul talks like this, the Spirit's power was demonstrated, first of all, it was demonstrated in their conversion. When the Corinthians came to Christ, it was a demonstration, not of Paul's polish in preaching, but rather it was a demonstration of the Spirit and power. What was it that took these people that Paul could say... Um Uh, Do not be deceived, neither homosexuals, nor effeminate, nor adulterers, nor idolaters, nor the covetous, nor the greedy, nor thieves, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. How in the world does God come along and actually take people who were idolaters and immersed in their own sin and transform their lives in a way that is absolutely radical? That is a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. There that that's not that's not trickery. The demonstration of the spirit and powers not only in, in, in conversion but in conviction, in response, in transformation, in motivation. And so Paul Paul could say to the Thessalonians, Our gospel. Came to you not in merely the words of men, but in power. Power from the Holy Spirit, full of conviction. So here's here's what Paul's getting at, and he's reminding the Corinthians of something that is really important and very powerful, and that is when the word of God is preached, and it is preached with Christ at the center, and it goes forth direct, and it goes forth to the heart, there is a power in that that comes from the Holy Spirit that cannot be denied, it cannot be resisted. It is something that is, it, it is, does not depend upon the education of the preacher, the experience of the preacher. It depends completely upon the Holy Spirit of God who empowers the Word. This is, this is nothing less than the valley of dry bones. There is a, Ezekiel 37, there is a valley of dry bones, dead, dry bones. And God asks his prophet, Son of man, tell me, can these bones live? What should be the natural response? No, they're dead. Dry bones, by the way, separated. All the uh, the ligaments and the tissue and everything is all dried up. You get the picture, right? You're out you're out deer hunting and you find a carcass. A mountain lion gets a deer, and you're looking, and the hindquarters are over there, and there are some ribs over there, and you're looking, and it's all dried out, and there's flies on it, and God says, "Can those bones live?" Ezekiel has enough sense to say, you know, Lord. Right? It's a great answer. You know, Lord. And then, of course, Ezekiel is told to do what? Prophesy over the bones. Okay. This, is, this is not, you know, like reconstructing a woolly mammoth or something and putting the bones back together by, you know, by, by archaeology. This is doing something that seems absolutely stupid. Preach to dry, dead bones. And so Ezekiel just does what he's supposed to do. And he preaches to the dry bones, and the Spirit comes, the breath of God comes, and brings life. That's what happens. Notice in in, in the passage, nobody says, man, Ezekiel was an awesome preacher. Do you see what he did? He preached to dry bones and they came to life. Let's let's start our own um, 501c3, Ezekiel's Dead Bones Ministries. He'll come and, and preach to dead bones anywhere and he's really good at it. Was That was not the point. The point was, is it just the simple human instrument, the significance of son of man, simple human instrument, doing what? Doing that which only God can do because God's the one working through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. How many times, how many times over the years is this just the reality? And so, uh, I was thinking... A couple months ago, he wouldn't mind if I told you this. I was um, talking with Walter Zeron. Some of you know Walter. When Walter was about 18, 19 years old, he started coming and meeting with me every week at Sarah's insistence he was not happy to be there. And to say that he would utter more than four or five words during the whole hour would be an exaggeration. He sat there, and I would talk to him, and I'd read scripture to him, and I'd ask him questions, and he'd give me one-word answers. And this went on week after week after week. And I kept thinking to myself, Lord... This is a waste of time. This guy no more wants to be here than I want to go to the dentist. And then one day he came in and he asked me this question What does it look like when you're born again? And so I started counting the words. What does it look like? You said more words in that question than you've said in the last six months. And so we started going through the scripture. And he looked at me and he said, I'm born again. And I'm thinking, really? <laughs> I, I mean, you looked like dead bones last week. What is it? It's not how good the witnesser is. It's not how good the testifier is. It's not how good the preacher is. It's the power of God's spirit. That's what matters. That's what matters. Spurgeon, in a a sermon called Preaching, um, Man's Privilege, God's Power talks about his own conversion and he says, he says, that poor man that was, that was preaching the day that I was converted was a, to- was totally unimpressive. You might remember the story. Spurgeon was, is 16 years old. He's trying to get to the Baptist church and he ends up getting caught in a snowstorm and the snowstorm shuts him up and he has to go down this little alley and he goes down this little alley and ends up in a primitive Methodist church. And the primitive Methodists in those days were the, uh, Uh, the the whoopers and the haulers, all right? And so here's Spurgeon, and there's only a handful of people because the snowstorm's so bad, and the preacher can't get there because of the snowstorm. And so (laughs) Spurgeon, in his own inimitable way, says, um, and some rather stupid-looking guy gets up. Completely untrained, completely just... And and so he took as his text, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 22, look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. And here was the sum and substance of his sermon. Look. Look. Look to me. God says, look to me. Christ says, look to me. Be saved. And then at one point in this, Spurgeon said he kind of spun himself out with just these few words, and he was just about done. And he says, young man, he points back to Spurgeon. He says, look to Christ and be saved. And Spurgeon leaves that place completely converted. Nobody ever knew who that guy was, by the way. And nobody ever claimed to be that guy. Of course, by the way, the Spurgeon described him, I don't doubt that anybody would want to. (laughs) Yeah, I was that stupid guy that only knew to say six things. Yeah, but he he said six things that were true, and God used it. That's the way God works. It's the demonstration of the Spirit and power. And I would would remind you that when when the message of Christ and Him crucified is set forth, the Holy Spirit actually delights to glorify and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of who the instrument is. My former pastor, Jim Andrews, tells a great story. He was... um, Campus, back in the days when they called campus crusade for Christ, campus crusade for Christ. And they were getting ready to descend upon this university, and they had a strategy in those days, and that was that they would take their best evangelist, who was their most apo- uh, polished apologist, and they would target what they called the BMOC. You know BMOC? Big man on campus, all right? Typically an athlete, and the idea was you get the BMOC converted, and then all of the little um, loser wannabe BMOCs will get converted too. It's great, great, great theology. Now, they had their ace, and they're looking for BMOC, and all of a sudden, one of the, the, the crusade leader looks over, and to his absolute horror here is this guy that had volunteered for crusade who was not overly bright heart was in the right place but just you know he he wasn't an apologist he wasn't much of an evangelist and as they look over and see Substandard guy talking to the big man on campus. Everybody's thinking, Oh no, he's gonna blow it. This guy's gonna eat him alive. He's gonna eat his lunch. There's this is this is only going to embolden them to resist the gospel. And as they stood there and watched helplessly, then BMOC bows his head and prays to receive Christ with the knucklehead. Why? Because what matters is not the human instrument, but the demonstration of the Spirit and power. And so that's what Paul says. that's what I was after. That's what I was after. When I was with you, that's all that mattered to me. I mean, honestly, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and work, then what good is it? Seriously. What good is it? If the Spirit of God is not using the Word of God to change lives, what good is it? And so Paul makes this final point. And um, he says, so your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So, Negatively, so in order that your faith would not rest or be in the wisdom of men. So here, here's here's the danger, right? So if if my gospel presentation is just polish and sophistry and and um, and human wisdom, and I persuade you to become a Christian, your faith is resting on how good my arguments were. Your faith is resting on how persuasive my rhetoric was. And I would remind us that what seems wise today, from human standards, may well be foolish tomorrow. Ray Ortland says today's unanswerable argument may well be tomorrow's discarded trash. So Paul says, here's the reason why I didn't go for the dog and pony show. So that your faith would rest in the power of God. And so what we'll do is, I'm over time, so sorry. Keep going, all right. That's That's all I need. Trust me, that's all I need. Turn it over, Yeah, turn the hourglass over. I remember years ago, I would be preaching, I'd go, oh, I'm overtime," and Don would say real loud, turn the hourglass over, preacher. And so, but in the power of God. So David Garland, faith is not based on how entertaining, informative, or compelling the speaker is, but on the power of God transforming the hearts of the hearers. That's it right there. And so Paul's message and Paul's method, both of those things intertwined were divinely appointed, and Paul was thoroughly committed to them so that he would not nullify the power of the cross, One seventeen, and that the faith of men would not be the result of his wisdom, but from God. So no gimmicks, no trick lighting. You know, you can make a lot of money... If being a a, a lighting engineer in churches today. Get the right mood. I was preaching at an unnamed church one time, and they have all these different colored lights there shining in my eyes, and I can't see my Bible, and let alone my notes. And I'm like, would you turn those lights off? And the green one would go, and the red one would go, and then, you know, and it was just like, no powerful dramatic presentations just the ordinary communication of simple preaching that seemed foolish to outsiders. That way, when there was a response, guess what? It'd be a clear demonstration that it was the power of God. Okay? So a cross-centered ministry was Paul's passion because that was God's power. Let me just close by telling you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 2, 5 actually had a huge, huge impact on me while I was in seminary. I would remind you, those of you who are old enough to remember, that in the late 80s and early 90s, that was the heyday. Of Bill Hybels and the Willow Creek Association and the Seeker Sensitive Movement and Rick Warren was the actually Rick Warren was the new up and comer with the purpose driven church and all of that. And 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 as a seminary student and then as a, a new church planter, I was bombarded with those things. First Corinthians chapter one, verses eighteen through two five actually got drilled down into my heart in such a way that said, you know what, no gimmicks, no lights, no dog and pony shows, no multimedia presentations. I mean, could you imagine even if we tried to do multimedia presentations, we can barely do a slideshow for singing. (laughs) Nothing but Christ and him crucified. Preach the word in season, out of season. Leave the results with God. That way, if God does something, you know, one, who did it, and two, who gets the glory. It's really simple. It's much better that way, by the way. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. It is, it is refreshing to us. We thank you for the simple message of Christ and him crucified and We pray, Lord, that you would help us as we minister to others, as we seek to articulate our faith, defend our faith, teach your word. We pray, Father, that you would remind us that it is not in human wisdom, but it's in your power. Father, help us to rely wholly upon you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.